So I've titled this talk, Replacing Darwin, The New Origin of Species. I'm writing a book by the same title. And hopefully by the end of this afternoon and evening, you'll see why I've, I've titled it as such. So that Dr. Keithley has given you this stated topic. What I want to do is actually step back from this fairly specific topic and, and look at the really big picture of the creation evolution debate first. And sort of a 30,000-foot view that I, I think is really critical in a setting like this. Then look at a 3,000-foot view. Why are we still debating a 19th-century scientific topic? How many other 19th-century scientific topics do we still fight about to this day? That's, I think, an important question to answer. Then spend some time, I'm, I'm calling it the 300-foot view of the non-genetic data, uh, or the, excuse me, the non-human data, both genetic and non-genetic, and then focus very intensely on the origin of our own species. So we're going to deal mainly with the origin of species in general in this hour, and then uh, after dinner, the origin of our own species. Now, this isn't the first time I've, I've done a, a session like this. About a year and a half ago, I was at the Evangelical Theological Society meeting. Uh, I think it was held in Atlanta that year, November 2015. Spoke opposite Daryl Falk of BioLogos. I got to know them some. I had spent uh, several hours with him a couple months prior. We had uh, about a four-hour lunch. Uh, interact with Jim Stump, with Brad Kramer. I had, I had dinner. We had a lovely time. He's their managing editor. And he said something to me at the end of that dinner that I thought was really insightful. He says, and he, uh, he has an MDiv degree, he said, look, I'm not a scientist. And for all of us who are not scientists, we can't adjudicate the evidence. We're just not trained. So it really comes down to a question of who you trust. And I thought that's very true. If, if roles were reversed, if this was, let's say, a, a discussion of Hebrew and some of the southeastern Old Testament faculty were discussing, I'd be sitting in the audience having to make that same decision. I can't adjudicate ancient Hebrew. If it was a physics discussion, I can't adjudicate physics, geology. It'd be a question of who I trust. So that's, I think, the bigger question everyone has to answer. Anyone who's not necessarily a biologist or geneticist, that's the question you have to answer by the end of this evening. Now that question becomes all the more acute once you look at the statistics, which the Pew Forum has been supplying to us for a number of years. There we go. And the surveys have shown a fairly consistent view of creation among the general populace for many years. Here's what I'm talking about, though, about in particular. The Pew Forum has done surveys of the American Association of the Advancement of Science members, or AAAS members, and the results are very stark. If you look at the number of AAAS members who would say, evolution is the explanation for how we humans got here, and we got here by natural processes. 87% of professional scientists would say this. If you include those who say God-guided evolution, you're up to 97%. In other words, less than 3% of professional scientists would endorse what I'm going to tell you this evening. So who do you trust? And really, though I'm here on behalf of Answers in Genesis and Dr. Venom on behalf of BioLogos, we're really representing this, this bigger, wider cultural debate. And so as you think about who you trust... Those are the numbers you have to deal with. And I'd like to take it a step further and say, whichever position you pick, you then have to explain the other side. So let's say you say, well, how can 97% of scientists be wrong? You're then going to have to explain the 3%. And there's a number of plausible explanations you could think of to explain why dissenters exist, uh, especially in the general public. You might say, well, they're just not educated on evolution. They haven't learned the science. Uh, maybe for those who have been trained in the science, 
they have such a strong religious commitment to a particular biblical interpretation. They speak outside of their field. And so, you know, this can't be true, but they're really not trained in that. So those are all, all potential explanations. But I think there are some particular individuals, like my colleague Jeff Tompkins, who worked at the Institute for Creation Research. I worked with him for six years there uh, before coming to Answers in Genesis. He was faculty at Clemson University before coming to ICR. He came to ICR around 2008, 2009. Uh, Ten years at Clemson, five years as director of the Genomics Institute, has over 50 published papers in the field of genomics, dealing with all sorts of organisms, animals, plants, uh, bumblebees, cotton, so forth. He's, he's done an enormous amount of work on this topic. And his area of descent is in the field of genomics. Some of his intense focus has been on the human-chimpanzee genetic similarity, the, the idea of the human uh, of a chromosome fusion and, and human chromosome 2 and our, and our descent from the chimpanzees, according to evolution, and other such arenas. So that's, he, he's speaking in the area in which he's done professional work. So if you trust the 97%, what do you do with people like that? And, of course, the question goes both ways. So that's, I think, the explanatory task before us this afternoon and evening. And I think in some case, so what I'm going to do now is, is I'm going first, so I'm going to deal with what's been published, and then hopefully by the Q&A we can, we can interact more directly with one another. Uh, so what, I'm, what, I'm, what follows is not to be disputatious, it's just because I'm going first. So how would some of the 97% explain people like me? So again, I'm, I'm here I'm just taking from Dr. Venom's book because we haven't sat and discussed this ahead of time, just going on what he's printed. So he said, it's no exaggeration to say that the very, very few trained biologists, you know, less than 3%, who reject common ancestry do so because of prior religious commitments, not for scientific reasons. And my impression is that's probably what most of the 97% would say. The Pew Forum has also surveyed religious profession among professional scientists, and at least two-thirds, and I can say this now in a seminary setting, would not be born again. Why is that? Because at least two-thirds cannot positively affirm belief in God, and belief in God is a necessary but not sufficient criteria for being born again. Uh, so at least two-thirds are not, not Christians. And so it wouldn't surprise me if many of them would say, well, people like me who have a strong religious background, well, it's, it's his religious commitments that are pushing him to do uh, embrace this particular view. And then to support this, Dr. Venema has quoted Todd Wood. Uh, Todd Wood would call himself a young earth creationist. Now, the term young earth creationist is not copyrighted, so anyone can take it who, they, who wants to. And uh, you can probably find a young earth quote for anything you want, including things like, cancer is not caused by mutations. Uh, there's also all sorts of crazy ideas out there. All sorts of splinter groups. And what goes along with that is also lots of lack of accountability. And some of what we do at Answers in Genesis to correct that is we have an internal editorial review board. We seek outside peer review. There's all sorts of ways to try to combat that trend in the Young Earth community, which is to be your own camp, have a group of followers, and have no accountability. Anyway, Todd Wood would fall in that, that splinter group category. So he says evolution is not a theory in crisis. There is evidence for evolution, gobs and gobs of it. It's my own faith choice to reject evolution. Now, Todd was pressed to give evidence and then he said in his blog he wouldn't. Anyway, that's an example of a, a typical explanation, let's say, for the 3%. But I think Dr. Venema has, has taken another step further. So this is something I want us to consider. Uh, he says Todd Wood is just being honest about the state of the evidence for evolution. But what does that imply then about those who would dissent? Would that imply that people who would disagree with the evidence for evolution are being dishonest? 
It's a question to consider. In one of the footnotes, Dr. Van Mess says Todd's approach is unique among the Young Earth literature in that it is thoroughly accurate and does not misrepresent the data. Does that then mean that the rest of the Young Earth literature, Jeff Tompkins and others, uh, is inaccurate? Does it misrepresent the data? Now, that's from Dr. Venema's book, because that was the stated topic for the, the reason for the invitation to discuss both of our books. I want to broaden the view now and ask more generally, what, what do the 97% view? So that same 2015 ETS meeting, uh, Biologos blogged about, and so the, this, this screenshot here is from, that, from their write-up from that 2015 event. And like their blog post, they have comments. One of the commenters, and so this comment is not a BioLogos staff member. Anyone can comment. Uh, but I'll, I'll see, I'll, you'll see why in a minute why I'm citing this. It's a gentleman named Patrick, not a BioLogos guy. If you can't see that, I'll read it for you. He said, Jensen, meaning me, may appear to be quite articulate. He is still dishonest in saying he is doing real scientific investigation. He reads the same genetic papers that I read. Granted, he's more knowledgeable in genetics than I as he has recent degrees in the subject and has published papers in the field. However, he takes the results of researchers who painstakingly worked years squeezing out new scientific knowledge from new genetic sequencing technology and dishonestly manipulates the data to correspond to Ken Ham's view of what the Bible says. That is not ethical scientific research. It is not science. He gets paid to do this dishonesty. He purposely manipulates other scientists' research to fit his and Ken Ham's views. It is dishonest and borders on fraud can be harmful to society and individuals if anyone takes them seriously. Now, again, this is not a spokesperson for BioLogos, and this is not what BioLogos has said, but I guess my question is, there's 60-plus comments on this blog post. Why was this not flagged as inappropriate or as character assassination? And I talked to Jim Stump after that 2015 ETS event, and he, he also floated the word dishonest uh, in our discussions. I asked him for his evaluation. Now... Biologos' core commitment is to strive for humility and gracious dialogue with those who hold other views. So I found this a little puzzling, something we can discuss further. Now, I'd say consistent with this pattern, though, uh, I want to cite one more example from Joel Duff. So Joel Duff is a member of the Biologos Voices, though he has his own blog and publishes uh, frequently and has, has many criticisms of the Young Earth model. He wrote this article for Biologos in August 2016 in response to the opening of Answers in Genesis Ark Encounter. And you can see the topic of his several hundred word blog post, Did Modern Animals Evolve from the Inhabitants of the Ark? I'll explain what he's getting at in a moment. Uh, I would describe this from my perspective as a hit piece, and you don't have to agree with this. Why would I say that? Well, let me just give an example. So he says, is there evidence for the rapid post-blood speciation proposed by AIG? Let me explain those terms. Dr. Duff does here. He says, if there were only 1,400 or fewer kinds on the ark, as claimed on the ark encounter, and, and that's accurate, that's what we would say, that kinds, so from a young earth perspective, kinds and species are not the same thing. If you think of the modern taxonomic system, you have species, next level up is genus, genus species, homo sapiens, that's our classification as humans, the next level is family, order, and so forth. We'd probably not put it at species or genus, but generally at least for vertebrate species, more at the level of family. Uh, as an example, there's 37 or so living cat species. We'd say those go, they're all part of the same family. We'd say they go, they, they go back to two ancestors on board the ark. So what Duff says here is, is correct. If there are only 1,400 or fewer kinds on the ark, as claimed on the ark encounter, and today there are more than 30,000 land animal species, let me stop there and explain that as well. So we'd say Noah took 
two of each kind of land air-breathing species. So that's just a handful, as he said, a few thousand. And from those then have descended the tens of thousands of land air-breathing species we see today. So if that's true, he says, and, and countless extinct species, is there evidence for the sudden appearance of thousands of new species in just over hundreds of years? Actually, it's over several thousand years, but whether hundreds or thousands, it's obviously in a stark contrast to what the evolutionary model would say, which is over millions of years. So how do you get this species sprint? That's his question. It's a fair question. Is there evidence for it? That's his, the, the question he asks. His answer is absolutely none. That's just the tone he takes in the article. Now, what's puzzling about this is I personally have written over 90,000 words on this topic alone, several technical papers, a lay article series, all that was published before his article was posted. Now, he asked another question in this article, where do young earth creationists seek evidence for post, rapid post-flood speciation? You'll notice uh, there's a placard there that's a picture of a placard on board the ark. It seems that he tries to answer that question largely with the placards and, and lay-level articles. Because when you look at the references, you don't see any reference to any of the technical papers or uh, more scholarly work that young earthers have published on this topic. Now, if you believe your opponents are liars, that's consistent, and that's well within anyone's right. But it was puzzling. Now, I'm interested in dialogue. I think this is very productive. I actively seek out people, especially opponents, who can critique what I'm doing, both, both for reasons of integrity and for reasons of pure selfishness. Who wants to publish something that's wrong and then you know, get reviewed and be wrong? And you get publicly exposed. So I personally like to know privately ahead of time. Anyway, so I wrote a response to what Dr. Duff had written. He only wrote a couple hundred words. Uh, it was a lay-level article, and I was trying to give a, an answer and some of his technical points. So mine was like 9,000 words, just because it takes that much time to then say, is this what he said? Explore it. What are the answers? Here's some data. And about a month ago, uh, Dr. Duff wrote another article for Biologos in response to the new movie, Is Genesis History? This was not necessarily on the topic of speciation, but that topic came up in his article. Get my slides synced here. There we go. That was his uh, recent article in March. Though he referenced in this article this rapid speciation concept. He talked about, there we go, the impossibly fast pace of speciation, That's hyperlinked. It hyperlinks back to the August article uh, with no comment on my response, as if it doesn't exist. Now, at the ETS meeting, uh, Daryl Falk and I were speaking. This is, again, a year and a half ago. Daryl Falk and I spoke opposite of one another on a a similar, more narrow topic, just the Adam and Eve question, not broadly creation, evolution, genetics. And we had, like I said, we met for four hours a couple months prior and had a lovely time. And he said, you know, it's a shame your organization won't allow more of this sorts of dialogue to happen. I said, you know, I'm not sure that's true. I can't speak for the leadership. I said, you know, where I could really use some feedback and some dialogue is on my technical papers. He said, well, I'm retired now. I don't have time for this. Uh, I don't think I can get to it. At the ETS meeting, and you, you can get the audio recording of this, he also brought up the topic saying, you know, it's, it's really too bad we don't have more dialogues. We need to have more discussion. And I said, oh, well, maybe something's changed. I said, Dr. Falk, you know, we talked in September uh, about you potentially reviewing my papers. Has it changed, basically? He said, no. I said, maybe. Now, we haven't discussed it since then, so the offer is still standing. So that's just a sketch, then, on this, on this broader question, who are you going to trust, and how do you explain the other side? I want to I set in front of you now 
So I've just set in front of you what the 97% might, might explain the dissenters. Here, now I want to focus briefly on theology. Uh, I'll, leave, I'll leave my, theology, my theological scholarly friends to discuss the theology. Just one point I want to make here. So the biological statement of faith speaks of the Bible being inspired and authoritative. You will not find a positive affirmation of inerrancy. And Deb Harbs, uh, Harzma, the biologist present, has told us why. This is also from one of the biologist articles. Some in biologists would not be comfortable with the word inerrancy. It's not how they would characterize their view of Scripture. Now, it would seem to me that biologists and the 97% in general would seem to take a very serious view of the scientific consensus. And I'll give you some more quotes in a moment towards that end. And so, so much so that it seems like the dissenters would be labeled liars if they disagree. Why is it then that a similar commitment is not made to the scriptures? That's a question I think we need to discuss. Now, again, my focus is in general on the 97%. I'm starting with biologos because that's obviously of immediate relevance, but now I want to go broader. Let's go to the American Scientific Affiliation, a 2,000-member organization of professing Christians as a statement of faith. How would they characterize the dissenters? So Randy Isaac uh, was president for about 10 years, formerly a member of the Biologos Advisory Council. He was interviewed, sort of an exit interview, I think about last fall, in, in their magazine, their journal, Perspectives on Science and Christian Faith. Uh, and this is what he said about, let's say, a, a young earth creationist view. He said, claims that scientific data affirm a young earth do not meet the criterion of integrity in science. The ASA can and does oppose such deception. So my impression is, is that this is a, a more broadly true, an explanation for the 3%. So whichever side you pick by the end of this evening, 97%, 3%, or maybe make up your own, uh, to me the explanatory task is what do you do with the other side? If you pick the 3%, what do you do with the 97%? If you pick the 97%, what do you do with the 3%? That's just a 30,000-foot view of this, this debate. That's, I think, a big picture, though, I think especially relevant to anyone who's not a geneticist, like I said, it would apply to me if, we're, if physics was the topic and not genetics and biology. Now I want to try to answer the question, why are we still having this debate? Why aren't we debating spontaneous generation? Why aren't we debating some other, some other scientific view from the 19th century? I think the answer to that question is found, and we can find it, just upon a brief reflection on, on the topic that Darwin wrote. So now I'm, now I'm zooming in from the big, broad question to now biology specifically. Darwin's topic was biology. His book was titled On the Origin of Species. Why are we still debating the origin of species? Obviously, most of the scientific community is not. 97% are not. But why is there still remnants of this to this day? Well, what is a species? That's the question. And that's the answer to that question, I think, holds the answer to why there's still a debate. We intuitively recognize what a species is. We recognize zebras by their stripes. There's actually three different species of zebras that differ in their stripe patterns. This is the plain zebra. It has stripes that go all the way around its belly. The other two do not. They stop. We recognize species by their traits. Zebras by their stripes. Elephants by their trunks. And there's two or three species, depending on who you talk to. You can recognize this African elephant species because of its shape, the shape of its ears and overall anatomy and physiology. We recognize different cat species, large and small, tigers by their stripes. And what I've tried to show in each of these images is offspring. This is a kindergarten point, but it's really profound. Species produce like individuals. If a tiger could produce an elephant, which could produce a snake, which could produce a butterfly in one generation, or one generation after the other, we wouldn't even have the concept of species. 
the fact that we have this terminal vocabulary implies some sort of consistency. Not necessarily perfect consistency, but it implies some sort of consistency. So let's think about this then. Species are defined by their traits, and traits are inherited consistently generation to generation, or at least the instructions for those traits. We now know those traits are encoded by genetics. So species are defined by traits, traits are defined by genetics. If you want to know the origin of species, if you want to know the origin of this tiger species, you need to know the origin of stripes. If you want to know the origin of stripes, you've got to know the origin of the DNA sequence that encodes it. If you want to know the origin of species, you must ultimately know genetics. The origin of species is a fundamentally genetic question. Now, how much did Darwin know about genetics in 1859? He tells us. This is from the summary section of chapter 5. He says, our ignorance of the laws of variation is profound. Well, he doesn't use the term genetics. That's because the term wasn't invented until the early 1900s. Most genetics textbooks begin with Gregor Mendel, and his results were published in 1865-1866, six years after Darwin published the first edition of his work. Mendel's results were lost for 30 years, rediscovered around the turn of the century, connected to chromosomes. Chromosomes are made up of protein and DNA. It took another half century, basically, before the scientific community accepted DNA as the physical substance of heredity. So nearly 100 years after Darwin published his work, the scientific community finally decides DNA is where it's at. And of course, like every good scientific story, it ends one and begins another. If you know that DNA is the substance of heredity, then the question becomes, what is the DNA sequence of the species around the globe, and how did it arise? So 1859, we don't have any DNA sequences. 1953, structure of DNA, Watson, Crick, and colleagues. Late 60s, we have the first DNA sequences that come into the databases. Late 70s, the first genomes. You start small, the viruses were the first species that had their complete DNA sequenced. 1997, which is what I'm demarcating there, is when we passed the 1 million DNA sequence mark. That doesn't mean we had the DNA sequence from a million species. I bring it up as significant because there's 1.6 documented species alive today, with conservatively many more left to be documented. My point is, in blue there, that's when we can finally answer the origin of species directly for the very first time. In other words, Darwin took a gigantic scientific risk when he tried to answer a fundamentally genetic question nearly a century and a half before he'd have any, any genetic data with which to answer it. And I think uh, Dr. Venom would agree with me based on or the substance of what I've said based on what he wrote in his book. That, of course, raises the question. If he took this massive scientific risk, how then was he able to persuade his colleagues? Why are his views still so persuasive today if we're at the, really the beginning of the modern genetic era? So that brings us then to the third topic I want to cover, which is uh, a 300-foot view of genetic and non-genetic data in species other than humans. Now, the first chapter of Dr. Venom's book has an excellent description of how science works and how theories arise, and I, I want to just pull some quotes from it so that we're all on the same page. So he says, the theory is an explanatory framework for why the facts are the way they are and connects it to his, to his personal story in a compelling way. In science, a hypothesis that is not rejected after many, many predictions and tests eventually becomes a broadly explanatory framework that has withstood repeated experimentation and that makes accurate predictions about the natural world. In other words, a theory. That's a pretty big quote, and we're going to focus on different parts of this, both this hour and the next. I want you to focus right now on what I've highlighted here. A hypothesis that is not rejected becomes a theory. That's the key to understanding how Darwin could persuade his colleagues in 1859, long before anyone would have any genetic data. 
Dr. Venom, of course, would say that uh, evolution is a theory in the scientific sense because it's withstood 150 years of scientific testing, testing that has failed to reject it. So let's explore some of that. I'll begin with the non-genetic data, sort of chronologically then, and then get to some genetic data, again, focusing on non-human species. We'll focus on humans specifically after dinner. So what are the things, some of the things Darwin might have cited to argue for his ideas that would have persuaded his colleagues? We have to put this in a historical context. What's going on in 1859? What do people believe then? Let me back up even further. The origin of species debate is really recent in a, in a broad view. What are species? We just discussed that. Well, species also denotes a formal scientific term of classification. That goes back to Linnaeus in the 1700s. Before Linnaeus, by and large, there was no universally accepted term for species. Therefore, if you don't have the term in your vocabulary, you really can't have a debate about it. Linnaeus, the father of modern classification, writes his Systeme Naturae in the 1700s, the 10th edition, 1758. If he's the father of modern taxonomy, you wouldn't expect the 10th edition to have that much documented. And if you look at the numbers, that's true. Let me use an example. So we're classified as mammals. There's over 5,400 mammal species alive today. How many do you think Linnaeus had documented in 1758? Less than 200. Now, if you're in the 1700s, early 1800s, and you have a very small data set of what actually exists on this planet, think about it. When was Australia discovered? What was missing from Linnaeus' data set? A whole bunch of marsupials. If you don't have a good sense for what species are alive, where they live, and really what the world is like, you might reach conclusions that are, in retrospect, fairly premature. So one of the conclusions that Linnaeus and his contemporaries reached was the idea that they looked at how certain species fit their environments. You might go to the Arctic, or the polar bear fits its environment very well. It seems designed for the Arctic environment. You go south, North America, black bears exist, not polar bears. They fit the North American forest environment better. So without even considering the scriptures, you can see how some of those early scientists derived a view of species fixity. Well, you can see where this is going. It wouldn't take much then, much scientific advance, much more discovery of species to reject that view. So that's largely what Darwin was rejecting. What he did is he corralled multiple lines of evidence. We don't have time to go into the geographic arguments he made. Uh, you can make an argument for common ancestry from geography alone. What he showed was that these, these data rejected the hypotheses of species fixity and the fixity of their geography. So he argued for migration and common ancestry. And he showed that these data did not reject evolution. That's how it works. That's how science works. Now, if the pendulum is here, no species are related. They all have been in their present locations since the beginning of time. Darwin swung the pendulum completely over here and said, all species are related, and they have acquired their modern locations by migration. Now, what are some of the data he would use to argue for that? What are some of the data he would say failed to reject the hypothesis of universal common ancestry? One is the pattern of life, the pattern in which life is classified. Technically, we'd call it a nested hierarchical pattern. It's a groups within groups, kind of like Russian nesting dolls. So humans, Homo sapiens, Homo genus species sapiens, are classified as a single species because we all share a tremendous number of characteristics in common. Wherever you go around the globe, tremendous number of characteristics. So we form a single species. Now, we have more in common with the great apes than we do with any other species alive on this planet. We have less in common with great apes than we do with one another, but more in common with great apes than anything else. So we're classified today in the same family, hominidae, with the great apes. Now we have more in common with monkeys and other primates than we do with other species. 
obviously less in common with monkeys than we do with one another. But then we, you know, we, we form the same order, primates. That's how this, this principle works. Groups within groups pattern. As you ascend this hierarchy, species, genus, family, order, class, phylum, kingdom, the number of shared characteristics declines, but the number of members of that group increases. And then the reverse pattern holds true. Kingdom animalia, all animals, have a certain number of characteristics in common that we share that we do not share with plants. And then you go down the hierarchy, the number of shared characteristics increases. We have more in common with mammals than we do with the rest of life, uh, but the number of individuals in the group decreases. We have more in common with vertebrates than invertebrates. We have more in common with animals than we do with plants. That's, that's the pattern, the nested hierarchical pattern of life. Why would evolutionists say this fails to reject the hypothesis of common ancestry? Because it fits what Darwin proposed as the mechanism for the origin of species, descent with modification. So you can see the first split there is between invertebrates and invertebrates. So they would have split millions of years ago. And as they're, once their lineage is split, they're acquiring differences. Their modification, the, the modification element of descent with modification. So the number of shared characteristics is sort of a function of time. And so they'd say as, as life evolved and diversified, the number of shared characteristics is a function of time since common ancestry. So the groups within groups pattern fails to reject the hypothesis of universal common ancestry. Now, what would creationists do today? Why are there still dissenters then? Because the modern creationists are not species fixity, and I'm speaking now for the young earth creationist community. Like I said earlier, in talking about Joel Duff's article, we'd say God created kinds, mean in Hebrew. Maybe I'm butchering that. You Old Testament people can tell me, but that's my best attempt. And that it's not equivalent to species or genus, and we, anyway, we can, we can talk about that later as how we derive that uh, in short, it deals with breeding tests and so forth. Uh, but really, scientifically, it comes down to genetics. Anyway, it's a whole other separate topic we can discuss at length. The point is, modern creationists do not share the same views as the 1859 creationists. We'll get to the implications of that uh, a little bit more later. One of the things we d that also has changed since 1859, you have the intelligent design community that has done a lot of work in developing the design side of the creationist model. What would expect from a design perspective? If God designed life, fiat, instantaneously, what, what would we expect him to do? Now, Genesis 1 does not tell us that God used this engineering textbook and design principle and so forth to make creatures. But what we do have is the statement that God made man in his own image. I know theologians still debate what this means. I think we'd probably agree that at a minimum it means that we somehow reflect something about the divine. So then I think it's fair to say Let's look at how humans design things and the patterns in which they design things and see if that can inform the question of how God might have designed things since we're made in his image. So I'm going to use vehicles as an example. You can look at sedans, four doors, two doors. There's a certain number of characteristics. Skip that slide because I'm out of order here. Here we go. Sedans have a certain number of characteristics that they all have in common. That and there's a whole number of characteristics they have in common that they do not share with other vehicles. Now, if you expand your system of classification of vehicles to those with four wheels, you know, sedans and trucks will have a number of characteristics they share that they do not share with 18-wheelers or tractors. Uh, but sedans and trucks have less in common than sedans in general have in common. And you see where I'm going with this. Land-based vehicles uh, that are powered, so 18-wheelers, uh, pickup trucks, sedans, you name it, indie cars, all have a number of characteristics in common that they do not have in common with jet airliners. But all powered vehicles have something in common, namely an engine, that unpowered vehicles do not. My point is, 
the things that humans have designed naturally fall into nested hierarchies as well. And the parallels are really astounding. What I'm not saying is that there are first principles that require this. You could design vehicles any way you wanted to. But it just so happens that these fall out into a nested hierarchical pattern. Now you might say, well, sedans themselves don't form a nested hierarchy, whereas species do. And I might say, well, panda bears don't form a nested hierarchy. They're a single species. So there's parallels even there. If you're comparing equivalent levels of classification, the parallel is really striking. So I would say that the nested hierarchical pattern of life also fails to reject the hypothesis of design. Fails to reject the hypothesis of universal common ancestry, but now, 150 years after Darwin, I would say it also fails to reject the hypothesis of design. What does that mean? Well, we'll get to a few more evidences and then reflect. Let's use another common evolutionary evidence, homology. It's similar but slightly different from the argument I just presented to you. Homo and homology, the study of homo, the study of sameness or the study of biological similarity. If you were to strip away the muscles, the skin, the nerves, and so forth from your forearm, you'd strip it down to the bone. It would look kind of like this on your, on your left. It's color-coded here, so you can see the order of the bones from top to bottom. And you can see there in brown, one bone at the top, then in red and white, uh, two bones, then in yellow, little blobs of bones, then the fingers. And you see that same order of the bones in the dog forelimb, the bird, and the whale. Now, there's obviously differences at the finger level. And evolution is descent with modification. The differences are due to modification. Evolutionists would say, why is there this shared structure, shared order of the bones? Because they were inherited, descent with modification from a common ancestor. So this evidence fails to reject the hypothesis of universal common ancestry. Well, in 2017, does it reject the creationist hypothesis? And once again, the design community has done a lot of work on developing what does is, what is a design model predict. And I would then apply to scripture and say humans created the image of God. We reflect something about the divine. How have we designed things? Well, you look at, again, sedans. There are things they have in common. There's a shared anatomy. You can see these three here on the screen. Uh, a Volkswagen product, Ford product, Mazda. So their manufacturers are based three different continents. Why do they have headlights in the front, four doors, uh, hatchback, four wheels, why do they have doors on the side? Is it because they inherited these features from a common ancestor in the Arctic? Obviously not. Is this the only way to design sedans? No. It just so happens that they have these shared features because it's easier to get into the car from the side than through the roof. It's a basic empirical observation. So I would say homology fails to reject universal common ancestry. It fails to reject design. Well, what about transitional forms? Under the evolutionary model, if... We started in the sea at some point, then fish-like creatures would have to evolve onto the land and go through a series of intermediates. And evolutionists would say, we found some of those intermediates, one of the most prominent being tiktalic or the fishapod. Seems to have scales like a fish or features like a fish, head like a tetrapod or, or land creature, and fins that seem like half, or excuse me, limbs that seem half like fins, half like legs. Seems to blend the features of two very different creatures. Would seem to fail to reject the hypothesis of universal common ancestry. So you can probably guess where I'm going with this now. Does it reject the hypothesis of design? Let's switch from commercial vehicles to military. What do military engineers do? How do they design things? If they want to move firepower through the ocean, if you've watched the news in Syria lately, you might have seen something like this, firing Tomahawk missiles. They design very powerful means of moving missiles and other firepower through the, through the waters. Now, this ship is pretty useless on land. It's a sitting duck. It'll get blown to smithereens. Uh, 
If military engineers want to move firepower on the land, they design all-terrain vehicles or tanks. These will sink like a rock in the ocean, are useless there. That's why they build ships. Now, what if you want to move firepower from the ocean to the land or vice versa? Military engineers have designed transitional forms, amphibious assault vehicles, that blend the features of ships and tanks. They aren't as good as ships in the ocean. They'll, they'll move through the water. They aren't as good as tanks on the land, but they'll do the job. They are perfect for the transitional environment between water and land. So I would say the existence of transitional forms also fails to reject the hypothesis of design. So where does that leave us? At this point, you might say, are there any evidences that do reject the hypothesis of design? If Darwin could reject fixity of species and the fixity of their geography in 1859, what's left? Is there a way to reject this design evidence? And ever since Darwin, evolutionists have been saying yes. And here's an example that combines this idea of ancestry and design. You can find it, I think it's in uh, Jerry Coyne's book, Why Evolution's True. Well, this is from a nature paper. A diagram of, so this is, I think, a couple decades old, but we'll get to the point in a moment. Diagram of the evolutionary series of, uh, of fossils and I think some modern species here showing the origin of whales. Evolutionists would not say that whales originated directly from a fish-like creature. They'd say that whales arose from a land mammal, four-legged land mammal. Well, as that evolved back into the ocean, no longer any need for those hind limbs so that they've basically degenerated into this stump, this remnant, this vestige of a hind limb. So what purpose would this serve? Why would a designer put the stamp of an evolutionary history in a creature like this? Why does this exist? It would seem to refute the idea, seem to reject the hypothesis of design while simultaneously failing to reject and perhaps even confirming the hypothesis of common ancestry. So what's the answer from a design perspective? Well, it's true. These don't seem to serve much function in the purpose of locomotion. But whales exist today not just, be, not just for the reason that they move through the water. They exist today because they reproduce. And reproduction in the water, the buoyant and slippery environment of the water, is a little bit more challenging than on land. And without getting into the, too much of the birds and the bees of whale reproduction, a little bony help at the back can, can make it easier. And that's all I want to say about whale reproduction. <laughs> if you look at our own body... You can, you can find evolutionary arguments there. In fact, when I was in Texas with ICR for six years, the Perot family funded a, a new science museum. It was originally going to be subtitled Exploring the Wonders of Evolution. They have, I think, on the second floor, a third floor, a whole section dedicated to these sorts of arguments, but within the human body. And a classic example of this has been the existence of the human appendix. Seems to serve no function. In fact, it was ridiculed for many years as being existing only to line the pockets of the surgeons who were paid to remove it. So what purpose does it serve? Well, even Jerry Coyne now would concede it serves to function in the immune system. He would argue that the size of the appendix fits the evolutionary idea, that it fits diet. Well, that's been re rejected as well. Anyway, the, the appendix has a function. What about in our skeletal system? Look at our spine. What's at the end of our spine? The tailbone. Evolutionists would say this would seem to hearken to our evolutionary past. Our monkey passed, prehensile tail. Once we moved out of the trees, devolved out of the trees, no longer any need for it. And so it's degenerated to this stump, tailbone. Doesn't seem to serve any, fu any function. Well, if you know someone who's had their coccyx, that's the term for it, the coccyx removed. And if you know them very well, you can ask them how their bowel movements are doing. Uh, because the coccyx is the site of attachment for many critical pelvic floor muscles. 
And I'll spare you the details of that as well. Needless to say, it has a function. And there are many such other examples like this. Now, the topic, of course, for this hour is creation, evolution, and genetics. How has genetics changed this? And from my impression is, uh, and, and we can discuss this more again next hour when it comes to humans, my impression is that genetics has changed this very little. If you look at evolutionary textbooks, they're still making the same arguments that I've just shown you, but with DNA. They'll say, if you look at the DNA of humans, it fits a nested hierarchical pattern. And I'm not keeping up with my slides because I'm looking at the podium. My apologies. There we go. If you look at the human DNA, it falls into a nested hierarchical pattern with primates, mammals, vertebrates, so forth. This, again, they would say, fits this idea, fails to reject the hypothesis of descent with modification. And because we've already covered this, I'll just say, I would argue it also fails to reject the hypothesis of design. If the final structures are the same, the blueprints are going to be shared. Why am I saying blueprints? DNA is really the blueprint of our body. It's the instruction manual for ten fingers, ten toes, a nose, two eyes, so forth. Well, if the sedan's final structure falls in a nested hierarchical pattern with other vehicles, well, then the blueprints for these vehicles surely will as well. So I think the same type of argumentation uh, holds here. You can even find a DNA argument that fits this idea of homology. Rather than saying there's shared structures, evolutionists would say there's shared genes. So genes are just subsets of our DNA that encode a particular function. They might say, well, we know the genes. In this case, they're the Hox genes. Uh, called something else in fruit flies. We have a similar set of genes as fruit flies that specify our body pattern from head to trunk. Why do we use the same types of genes? Fruit flies, mice, humans, why is that? Descent with modification. Descent because we inherited them. Uh, they'd even say, you know, the structure of chromosomes, the, the patterns and, and, and the linear arrangement of these genes on chromosomes is shared. The reason that these are shared is descent with modification. Once again, though, we're looking at the blueprints. If the, if the final vehicles have shared anatomy and so forth, structure, well, then their blueprints will have shared things as well. The blueprints will have things in common. Again, not due to common ancestry in the Arctic, uh, but simply from design principles. Not from first principles, let's say. This is the only way you can design it. This is simply an empirical observation. Because the DNA sequences that we possess are largely from living species, we don't yet have a very good analogy for the transitional forms argument. Maybe you could argue with some of the limited data we have. So I'm not going to cover that. But the parallels, again, to, to, the, to the anatomical arguments find an, an analogy in, in DNA. Is there genetic evidence that rejects the hypothesis of design? If I'm using design as, as a competing explanation for the data we just looked at, what about at the genetic level? And, of course, Biologos would cite this. If you look at their genetic evidence, they talk about genetic scars, which, again, by its name, uh, implies some sort of error. And I'm, I'm not trying to misrepresent them. You'll, you'll see some of the detailed arguments are arguments from function. So what is the function of DNA? How much of the human DNA is functional? Some evolutionists might say, well, maybe 10% is functional. That's all you can argue for. Let's think back to the evolutionary arguments for the appendix, for the, for, the, for the tailbone or the coccyx, for the evolutionary vestige. What was the problem with those arguments? I'd say there were two problems with those arguments. Number one, they're arguments from silence. Absence of evidence is not necessarily evidence of absence. I'll say it again. Absence of evidence is not necessarily evidence of absence. It might be, but it might not be. So it's, it's already on a shaky foundation. 
What makes it even more shaky, and I think a second reason these arguments had faced some, some severe challenges, is the absence of evidence was not derived from decades of experimentation that failed to identify positive evidence for function. The absence of evidence arose from the absence of experimentation itself. So then no surprise, as experiments progress, that evidence of absence disappears, and we find evidence for function. So when evolutionists might say there's little evidence for function in the human genome, the first question to ask, of course, is, well, what experiments have been done? The gold standard is genetic knockout. Fortunately, that's still considered unethical in humans. We shouldn't be guinea pigs where someone goes into you and tries to knock out your DNA just for knowledge's sake. But there are individuals around the planet that have, naturally, because of mutations, because I would say because of the fall, they're missing sections of DNA, or somehow some of their genes have been rendered non-functional. Now, only 6%, I think this is an Icelandic study, only 6% of the genes in the human genome have this sort of individual representation which means the vast majority of our genes have yet to be tested by the gold standard for function. And since genes represent less than 5% of our total DNA, you can easily see then that the vast majority of our DNA sequence has yet to undergo any experimental manipulation. There's been biochemical studies. That's the, you may have heard of the ENCODE project that they said there was evidence for function in 80% of the genome, and it was criticized as being premature. It is premature. It's only biochemistry. It's not genetics, and they're only looking at a, a, a small subset of cell types. There's all sorts of developmental windows they did not have access to. And again, you're running into ethical issues here. What are you going to do? How are you going to access a baby in the womb and, and test the function of DNA in those tissues? But I think we have the same problem as we do in anatomy and physiology. Absence of evidence is not necessarily evidence of absence. And the absence of evidence is from absence of experimentation. To me, what the ENCODE project suggests is a trajectory that is pointing towards increasing levels of function. We won't know if that trajectory holds up or not, but it looks to me like the evidence is pointing towards high levels of function in human DNA. And again, that's, that's what it looks like to me. That's a hypothesis that's testable. And I anticipate then that as that level, the evidence for function goes up, uh, the arguments then will have to necessarily change. And let me just pick one example real fast for sake of time. This is the ENCODE project. I'll skip that again. There's a study of pseudogenes. So you can see in the name pseudogene, it, even in the name itself, it sounds like this was a gene that once was and no longer is. It used to be a gene. It's broken. Well, the ENCODE project studied basically every, every single letter in the human DNA sequence. And since there's pseudogenes in the human DNA sequence, it's no surprise these were studied as well. Well, similar experiments have done in, in, been done in other species, including worms and fruit flies. And the pseudogenes in these species have also been investigated biochemically for function. And not surprisingly, the number of human pseudogenes that have at least preliminary biochemical evidence for function mirrors what you see across the entire genome, about 80%. And similar numbers, 70-ish percent in worms and flies, also hold true. Again, this is not genetic knockout experiments. It's not the gold standard. But it does set a trajectory. I don't think the evolutionists anticipated this sort of thing. Only time will tell how this turns out, but again, in light of what anatomy and physiology has shown, I don't think this, this trajectory bodes well. So let's wrap this up then. Where does that leave us? We went from Linnaeus in 1758 to the present, with Darwin in between. Darwin rejecting, through a series of very clever experiments, very clever uh, data, was able to reject the hypotheses of fixity of species, fixity of their geography, 
also argued that there was a number of lines of evidence that failed to reject the hypothesis of universal common ancestry. Uh, and this is why Dr. Venom would say that you know, 150 years later, it still stands. I would argue, though, looking at the classic lines of evidence from evolution, both in the realms of anatomy and physiology and genetics, uh, and, and tracing the origin of modern young earth creationism, or at least the revival of young earth modern creationism, to the publication of the Genesis Flood by Whitcomb and Morris in 61, about 50-ish you know, or so years ago, that the young earth model has also withstood years of experimentation and test. So there's a number of lines of evidence that fail to reject the young earth model. Now, part of Dr. Benema's definition of a, of a theory is one that makes, makes testable predictions. That's something we'll explore in detail after dinner. But on the perspective in general on the origin of species, I would argue that what we see here is a rejection of one end of the spectrum by Darwin's data, species fixity and the fixity of their geography. Darwin swung the pendulum the other way with a bunch of lines of evidence. And I would argue that those lines of evidence do not reject the modern creationist view, which basically means we're back to square one in the origins debate. Which means then what we're going to discuss after dinner is going to be doubly important. Number one, because it's genetic data. And it's our own species, so there's a human interest factor. But it's genetic data that we're going to focus on intensely. And it's, it's the most important scientific field. Genetics is the only direct record of a species ancestry, scientifically. Uh, and the only way you can use indirect data is by rejecting competing views. And hopefully what you've seen is those competing views have matured and makes the, the debate different. Uh, and in light of that fact, then, it's doubly important that we, we discuss this genetic data in depth in the next hour.